This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story by Joyce Carol Oates called Mastiff. The dog's damp, shining eyes were fixed on her, sharply focused. With a kind of indignation quickly shifting to fury, it barked at the woman. The story was chosen by Louise Erdrich, whose poems and stories have been appearing in the magazine since the late 1980s. Her latest novel, The Roundhouse, came out in 2012 and won the National Book Award. She joins me from a studio in Minnesota, where she lives. So welcome back, Louise. Thank you, Deborah. I'm happy to be here. Now, the last time you were on the podcast was in 2008, and you read a story by Laurie Moore called Dance in America. Yes. Mastiff is quite a different piece. Do you think that these two writers have anything in common? I chose each one of those stories because I couldn't forget something about them. They kept coming back to me. Mm-hmm. And and this one especially, it stuck with me. I kept thinking about the last scene. I kept thinking about the scene, the very centerpiece of the story, and about the relationship of these two people. Has... Joyce's work been important to you over the years? Have you read her for a long time? Yes, I have. I'm an admiring fan. And I know that the first thing people seem to ask her is, um, how can a woman write with this amount of fervor, this sort of lurid sort of writing? And I guess I feel some sort of kinship with her on that level. I have been asked similar questions. But... I think it's an absolutely wrong way to go about looking at her work. Her work engages you at a visceral, but also at a a highly pitched emotional and intellectual level. As in the piece that I'm going to read, you feel this interiority. You know what each person is thinking. And the relationship that's built is very intricate. Right. It goes far beyond the sort of what people would call the luridness of the actual violence that happens in this story. Yeah. Sometimes I think, you know, this incident that I'm going to read about is not really the central incident, I I think, of this story, but it serves as a way to talk about this relationship. And it brings so many questions up in terms of their future and the relationship that they have at present. I uh, trade books back and forth with my husband. We read parts of her books aloud to each other. And uh, this one really captured both of us. But I suggest only reading it with someone to whom you have a fairly secure relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Because it really does. It's not a good first date story. Some some disturbing questions. Oh, great. We'll talk more about the story after we hear it. And now here's Louise Erdrich reading Mastiff by Joyce Carol Oates. Earlier, on the trail, they'd seen it. The massive dog, tugging at its master's leash so that the young man's calves bulged with muscle as he fought to hold the dog back. Grunting what sounded like, Damn Rob Roy! Damn dog! in a tone of exasperated affection. Signs along the trail forbade dogs without leashes. At least this dog was on a leash. The woman stared at the animal, not twelve feet away, 
wheezing and panting. Its head was larger than hers, with a pronounced black muzzle, bulging glassy eyes. Its jaws were powerful and slack. Its large, long tongue, as rosy pink as a sexual organ, dripped slobber. The dog was pale brindle-furred, with a deep chest, strong shoulders and legs, a taut tail. It must have weighed at least two hundred pounds. Its breathing was damply audible, unsettling. The dog's straggly-bearded young master, in beige hoodie, khaki cargo shorts, and hiking boots, gripped the leather leash with both hands, squinting at the woman and at the man behind her with an expression that seemed apologetic or defensive, or maybe, the woman thought, the young man was laughing at them, ordinary hikers, without a monster dog to pull and strain at their arms. The woman thought, that isn't a dog, it's a human being on its hands and knees. Such surreal thoughts bombarded the woman's brain, waking and sleeping. As long as no one else knew about them, she paid them little heed. Fortunately, the dog and its owner were taking another trail into Wildcat Canyon. The dog lunged forward eagerly, sniffing at the ground, the young man following with muttered curses. The woman and her male companion continued on the main trail, which was three miles uphill, into the sun, to Wildcat Peak. The man, sensing the woman's unease at the sight of the dog, made some joke, which the woman couldn't quite hear and did not acknowledge. They were walking single file, the woman in the lead. She waited for the man to touch her shoulder, as another man might have done, to reassure her, but she knew that he would not, and he did not. Instead, the man said in a tone of slight reproof that the dog was an English mastiff. Beautiful dog. Much of what the man said to the woman, she understood, was in rebuke of her narrow judgment, her timorous ways. Sometimes the man was amused by these qualities. At other times she saw in his face an expression of startled disapproval, veiled contempt. The woman said over her shoulder with a wild little laugh, Yes, beautiful. The hike had been the man's suggestion, or rather in his oblique way, which was perhaps a strategy of shyness. He'd simply told her that he was going hiking this weekend and asked if she wanted to join him. He had not risked being rejected. He'd made it clear that he would be going, regardless. The woman had been introduced to the man seven weeks earlier at a dinner party at a mutual friend's home in the Berkeley Hills. The friend, closer to the man than to the woman, had said to the man, You'll like Mariella. You'll like her face. And to the woman, Simon's an extraordinary person. But it may not be evident immediately. Give him time. The woman and the man had gone on several walks together already. But a hike of such ambition seemed, to the woman, something quite different. 
She'd said, yes, I'd love that. It was late afternoon. They had been hiking for several hours and were now making their way single file down the mountain. The woman was descending first, then the man. The man, the more experienced hiker, wanted to watch over the woman whom he didn't trust not to hurt herself. She'd surprised him by wearing lightweight running shoes on the trail and not as he was wearing hiking boots. She hadn't thought to bring water either. He carried a 20-ounce plastic bottle of water for them both. The man was a little annoyed by the woman. Yet he was drawn to her. He hoped to like her more than he did. He hoped to adore her. He had been very lonely for far too long and had come to bitterly resent the solitude of his life. It had been an unnaturally balmy day for late March. At midday, the temperature was perhaps 68 degrees. But now, as the sun sank like a bloody broken egg, darkness and cold began to rise from the earth. The day before... The man had suggested to the woman that she bring a light canvas jacket in her backpack. He knew how quickly the mountain trail could turn cold in the late afternoon. But she had worn just a sweater, jeans, and a sun visor. The woman's eyes were sensitive to sunlight, even with sunglasses. She hated how easily they watered, tears running down her cheeks like an admission of weakness and she'd confounded the man by not bringing a backpack at all, with the excuse that she hated feeling burdened. In the gathering chill, the woman was shivering. The trail had looped upward through pine woods to a spectacular view at the peak, where the man had given the woman some water to drink. Though she said she wasn't thirsty, he insisted. There's a danger of dehydration when you've been exerting yourself, he said. He spoke sternly as if he were a parent she could not reasonably oppose. He spoke with the confidence of one who is rarely challenged. At times the woman quite liked his air of authority. Other times she resented it. The man seemed always to be regarding her with a bemused look, like a scientist confronted with a curious specimen. She didn't want to think, yet she thought, compulsively, that he was comparing her with other women he'd known and finding her lacking. Then the man took photographs with his new camera, while the woman gazed out at the view. Along the horizon was a rim of luminous blue, the Pacific Ocean, miles away. In the near distance were small lakes, streams. The hills were strangely sculpted, like those bald slopes in the paintings of Thomas Hart Benton. Absorbed in his photography, the man seemed to forget about the woman. How self-contained he could be. How maddening. The woman had never been so at repose in her self. For nearly an hour he lingered, taking photographs. During this time, other hikers came and went, the woman spoke briefly with these hikers while the man appeared oblivious of them. It wasn't his habit, he told her, to strike up conversations with random people. 
Why not? she'd asked. And he'd said with a look that suggested that her question was virtually incomprehensible. Why not? Because I'll never see them again. With her provocative little laugh, the woman had said, But that's the best reason for talking to strangers. You'll never see them again. At least the bearded young man with the English mastiff hadn't climbed to the top of Wildcat Peak, though other hikers with dogs had made their way there. A succession of dogs, in fact, of all sizes and breeds. Fortunately, most of them well-behaved and disinclined to bark, several of them trailing their masters, older dogs, looking chastised, winded. Nice dog. What's his name? The woman would ask. Or, what breed is he? She understood that the man had taken note of her fear of the mastiff at the start of the hike, how she'd tensed at the sight of the ugly, wheezing beast. It had to be the largest dog she'd ever seen, as big as a St. Bernard, but totally lacking that dog's benign, shaggy aura. And so at the peak, the woman made a point of engaging dog owners in conversations, in a bright, airy, friendly way. She even petted the gentler dogs. As a child of nine or ten, she'd been attacked by a German shepherd. She'd done nothing to provoke the attack, and could only remember screaming and trying to run as the dog barked furiously at her and snapped at her bare legs. Only the intervention of adults had saved her. The woman hadn't told the man much about her past. Not yet, and possibly wouldn't. Her principle was, never reveal your weakness. Especially to strangers, this was essential. Technically, the woman and the man were lovers, but they were not yet intimate. You might say, the woman might have said, that they were still fundamentally strangers to each other. They'd been together in the woman's house, upstairs in her bed, but they hadn't yet spent an entire night together. The man felt self-conscious in the woman's house, and the woman hadn't been able to fall asleep beside him. The physical fact of him was so distracting. Naked and horizontal, the man seemed much larger than he did, clothed and vertical. He breathed loudly, wetly, through his open mouth. And though he woke affably when she nudged him, the woman hadn't wanted to keep waking him. In truth, the woman had never been very comfortable with a man at close quarters, unless she'd been drinking. But this man scarcely drank, and the woman no longer lost herself in drink. That life was behind her. The woman liked to tell her friends that she wanted not to get married, but to be married. She wanted a relationship that seemed mature, if not old and settled, from the start. Newness and rawness did not appeal to her. Excuse me, when do you think we might head back? She spoke to the man hesitantly, not wanting to break his concentration. In their relationship, she had not yet displayed any impatience. She had not yet raised her voice. 
At last, the man put his camera, a heavy, complicated instrument, into his backpack, along with the water bottle, which contained just two or three inches of water now. We might need this later. His movements were measured and deliberate, as if he were alone, and the woman felt a sudden stab of dislike for him. Anger that he could take such care with trivial matters, and yet did not seem to love her. There were no restrooms on the damn trail, of course. These were serious hiking trails for serious hikers. Longingly, the woman recalled the facilities at the trailhead. How long would it take to hike back down? An hour? Two? For male hikers, stopping to urinate in the woods was no great matter. For female hikers, an effort and an embarrassment. Not since she was a young girl, trapped on an endless, hateful hike in summer camp in the Adirondacks. Had she been forced to relieve herself in the woods? The memory was hazy and blurred with shame and humiliation at the very pettiness of her discomfort. If she'd told the story to the man, he probably would have laughed at her. Driving to the park that day, the man and the woman had felt very happy together. It sometimes happened to them, unpredictably, a sudden flaring up of happiness, even joy, in each other's company. The man was unusually talkative. The woman laughed at his remarks, surprised that he could be so witty. She was touched that, a few days before, he'd visited the art gallery she ran and purchased a small soapstone sculpture. The woman slid over in the passenger's seat to sit closer to the man, as a young girl might do, impulsively. How natural this felt, a rehearsal of intimacy. The car radio was playing a piano piece by the Czech composer Janáček, In the Mists. The woman recognized it after a few notes. She'd played the piano cycle as a girl. Her eyes filled with tears as she remembered. The man continued talking as if he didn't hear the music. Avidly, the woman listened to the somber, distinctive notes in a minor, misty key. She didn't register the man's words, but his voice was suffused with the melancholy beauty of the music, and she felt that she loved him, or might love him. He will be the one. It's time. The woman was forty-one years old. The man was several years older. He had been the director of a research laboratory in Berkeley for many years. His work was predominant in his life. He was idealistic, a zealot for science education and the preservation of the environment. He was famously generous to younger scientists, a legendary mentor to his graduate students and postdocs. He'd never married. He wasn't sure he'd ever been in love. Though he'd always wanted children, he had none. He was dissatisfied with his life outside the lab. He felt cheated and foolish, worried that others might pity him. He'd been upset earlier that year, 
while visiting one of his protégés at the Salk Institute, whose wife was also a scientist and who had several children. The young family lived in a split-level cedar house on three acres of wooded land. In this household, the man had felt sharply the emptiness of his own existence. In an under-furnished, rented house near the university, where he'd lived for more than twenty years. He'd ended the visit shaken. And not long afterward, he'd met the woman at a dinner party. The woman was also lonely and dissatisfied, but primarily with others, not with herself. She'd had several relationships with men since college, but she hadn't felt much for any of them. Some she had dated simultaneously, And yet she was deeply hurt if a man wasn't exclusively involved with her. Her father had left the family when she was a child and rarely visited. All her life she'd yearned for that absent man, even as she'd resented him. She'd hated her own vulnerability. She was an attractive woman. Within her small circle of friends, she was popular, admired, She dressed stylishly. She was social. She'd invested wisely in her art gallery. Still, she was preoccupied with how she appeared in others' eyes. She could barely force herself to contemplate her own image in a mirror. Her face, she thought, was too small, her chin too narrow, her eyes too large and deep-set. She hated the fact that she was petite, She'd have preferred to be five feet ten, to walk with a swagger, with sexual confidence. At five-three, it seemed she had no choice but to be the recipient, the receptacle, of a man's desire. Sometimes, in the midst of buoyant social occasions, something inside the woman seemed to switch off. She could feel a deadness seeping into her, a chilly indifference. At the end of an evening, her women friends would hug her, or a friend's husband might slip his arm around her waist to kiss her, just a little too suggestively, and the coldness in her would respond, I don't give a damn if I ever see any of you again. She laughed at herself. A hole in the heart. Yet it happened, in the new man's company, that the woman felt a rare hopefulness. If she couldn't love the man, it might be enough for the man to love her, enough for them to have a child together, at least. In the woman's weakest moments, she lamented the fact that she had no children, that she would soon be too old to have any. Yet children bored her, even her nieces and nephews, who she conceded were beautiful. What would the man have thought if he'd known about the woman's calculations? Or were these just harmless fantasies, unlikely to be realized? Now, making her way down the trail, eager to be out of the park that had seemed so inviting hours ago, the woman felt disconsolate. The long wait at the peak had enervated her. The man's seeming indifference had enervated her. As the sun shifted in the sky, she felt strength 
leaking from her. Brooding and silent, the man walked behind her, sometimes so close that he nearly trod on her heels. She wanted to turn and shout at him, Don't do that. I'm going as fast as I can. So absorbed was the woman with the voice inside her head that she only half realized that she'd been hearing a familiar sound somewhere close by. A wet, chuffing noise. A labored breathing. The trail continued to drop, turning back on itself. Another lower trail ran parallel to it now and would join it within a few yards. And on this trail, two figures were hurrying, one of them in the lead, a large beast running on all fours. Appalled, the woman saw the enormous mastiff stop at the junction of the two trails. Unavoidable. The dog's damp, shining eyes were fixed on her, sharply focused. With a kind of indignation quickly shifting to fury, it barked at the woman, straining at its leash as the bearded young man yelled at it to sit. The woman knew better than to succumb to panic. Certainly, she knew better than to provoke the dog. But she couldn't help herself. She screamed and shrank away. It was the worst possible reaction to the dog, which, maddened by her terror, leaped at her, barking and growling, wrenching the leash out of its master's hands. In an instant, the mastiff was on the woman, snarling and biting, nearly knocking her to the ground. Even in her horror, the woman was thinking, My face! I must protect my face! Her companion quickly intervened, pushing himself between her and the dog, even as the dog, on its hind legs, continued to attack. Futilely, the dog's master shouted, Rob Roy! Rob Roy! The dog paid not the slightest attention. The frantic struggle couldn't have lasted more than a minute or two. Fiercely, the man struck at the dog with his bare fists and kicked it. The young man yanked at the dog's collar, cursing. With great effort, he finally managed to pull the animal away from the man, who was bleeding badly now from lacerations on his hands and arms and face. The woman, terrified, was cringing behind him. She felt something wet on her face. Not blood, but the dog's slobber. She called out, Help him! Get help for him! He'll bleed to death! The dog was still barking hysterically, lunging and leaping with bared fangs, while the young man struggled to hold it down, apologizing profusely, claiming that the dog had never done anything like this before, not ever. Jesus, I'll get help! There was a ranger station a half mile down the trail, the young man said. He'd run. Alone with the injured man, the woman cradled him in her arms as he moaned in pain. He appeared to be dazed, stupefied. Was he in shock? His skin felt cold to the woman's touch. She could barely comprehend what had happened, and so swiftly. 
The dog had bitten and scratched her hands, too. She was bleeding. But her fear was for the man. She fumbled in her pocket for her cell phone, tried to call 911. But the call failed to go through. She wondered whether she should make a tourniquet to staunch the flow of blood from the man's forearm. Years ago, in high school, she'd taken a course in first aid, but could she remember now? For a tourniquet, you had to use a stick. Her eyes darted about, searching for... what? Like a foolish, trapped bird, her heart beat erratically in her chest. The man insisted now that he was all right, that he could walk to the ranger station. Grotesquely, he tried to laugh. He had no idea how torn and bloody his face was. The woman helped him to his feet. How heavy he was. How uncoordinated. His face was a mask of blood, flaps of loose skin on his cheeks and forehead. One of his earlobes was torn. At least his eyes had been spared. The woman gripped the man around the waist, clumsily, and he was able to walk, leaning on her. She tried to comfort him. She had no idea what she was saying, except that there would be help for him soon. He would be all right. She saw that the front and sleeves of her sweater were soaked in dark blood. By this time, the sun had sunk below the tree line. It was dusk, and the air was cold and wet, as if after a rain. They began to hear calls. Two rangers were running up the shadowy trail with flashlights, shouting. They were taken to the ranger station and given first aid. Sterilizing liquid bandages. For the man's lacerated forearm, a tourniquet deftly applied by the elder of the rangers, who told the man how lucky he was, the artery wasn't severed. With a dog attack, there was the possibility of rabies. It was imperative to locate the dog. It seemed that the young man had fled the park with the mastiff. Incredibly, he had not even reported the attack. But a hiker, who had witnessed it from a distance, had alerted the rangers and taken down the plate number of the young man's jeep. The son of a bitch would be prosecuted for the attack and for leaving the scene, too, the ranger said. Around the bandages, the man's face was ashen. His breath came quickly and shallowly. He was urged to lie down on a cot. Despite his protests, an ambulance was called. His injuries required stitches, that was clear. Within minutes, the ambulance arrived in the now deserted parking lot. The woman wanted to ride with the man, but he insisted that she take his car and meet him at the hospital. He didn't want his vehicle to be locked in the park overnight. Even with his injuries and speaking with difficulty, the man appeared to be thinking calmly, rationally. The woman took his keys and his wallet and backpack and followed the ambulance along curving mountain roads in his station wagon. She could hardly breathe. Her loneliness as palpable and suffocating as cotton batting. 
She still could not quite fathom the idea that the dog's owner had fled the park without reporting the attack. The young man had cared so little about their welfare. He'd fled, knowing that if his dog wasn't located by the authorities, both victims would have to endure rabies shots. She'd been told by the rangers that he would be apprehended within a few hours. The attack had already been reported to the local police. A warrant would be issued for the dog owner's arrest. She'd been assured that the authorities would find the man and check the dog for rabies, but in her distressed state she'd scarcely been able to listen or to care. At the brightly lit clinic, the woman hurried inside as the man was carried into the ER on a stretcher. He seemed to be only partly conscious now, unaware of his surroundings. She asked one of the medical workers what was wrong and was told that the man had had a kind of seizure in the ambulance. He'd lost consciousness. His blood pressure had risen alarmingly, and his heartbeat had accelerated in fibrillation. Fibrillation. The woman knew only vaguely what this meant. She was prevented from following the man into the ER. She found herself standing at a counter being asked questions. She fumbled with the man's wallet, searching for his health insurance card, his university ID. How slowly she moved, as clumsy in her bandages as if she were wearing mittens. One of the EMTs was telling her that she should be treated as well. Her lacerated hands and wrists should be examined. But the woman refused to listen. She flushed with indignation when the woman behind the counter asked how she was related to the injured man. Sharply, she said, I am his fiancée. How long she remained in the ER waiting room, the woman had no clear idea. Time had become disjointed. Her eyelids were so heavy she could barely keep them open. Several times she inquired after the man and was told that he was undergoing emergency treatment for cardiac arrhythmia and that she could not see him yet. This news was unacceptable to her. He'd only been bitten by a damn dog. He hadn't seemed so badly injured. He'd insisted on walking. The woman was lightheaded. Her hands and wrists began to burn. She heard her thin, plaintive voice begging, Don't let him die. Looking around, she saw how others regarded her. A woman crazed with worry, fear. A woman whose voice was raised in panic. The sort of woman you pity, even as you inch away from her. She saw that her coarse-knit Scottish sweater, it had been one of her favorites, had been torn beyond repair. In a fluorescent-lit restroom, her face in the mirror was blurred, like those faces on TV that are pixelated in order to disguise their identity. She was thinking of how the massive dog had thrown itself at her, and how, astonishingly, the man had protected her. Did the man love her, then? What a coward she'd been, ducking behind him to save herself, grabbing at him desperately, cringing, crouching, whimpering like a terrified child. 
the man had thrust himself forward to be attacked in her place. A man who was virtually a stranger had risked his life for her. The woman had the man's backpack with his camera and his wallet. In a state of nervous dread, she looked through the wallet, a leather billfold of good quality but badly worn, credit cards, university ID, library card, driver's license, a miniature photo of a tensely smiling middle-aged man with a furrowed forehead and thinning shoulder-length hair, whom she would have claimed she'd never seen before. She discovered that he was born in 1956. He was 57 years old, a decade older than she'd guessed, and 16 years older than she was. Another card indicated that the man had a cardiac condition, mitral valve prolapse. There was a much-folded prescription dated several years before, for a medication to be administered intravenously. Nearest of kin to be notified in case of emergency, a woman with the man's last name, possibly a sister, who lived in San Diego. The woman hurried to the desk to speak with a nurse. She pressed the prescription on the woman, who promised to report this discovery to the cardiac specialist overseeing the man's treatment. They were only humoring her, the woman supposed. The hysterical fiancé. They'd performed their own tests on the stricken man. Ma'am? The waiting room was nearly empty when an attendant came to inform her that her companion was to be hospitalized for the night, kept under observation in the cardiac unit. The cardiologist on call had managed to control the man's fibrillation, and his heartbeat was near normal but his blood pressure was still high and his white blood cell count was low. The woman tried to feel relief, tried to think, now I can go home. The danger is past. Instead, she went upstairs to the cardiac unit. For several minutes, she stood outside the doorway of the man's room, undecided whether to enter. Inside, the man lay unnaturally still as nurses fussed about him, his heartbeat was monitored by a machine. His breathing was monitored. The woman saw that the bandages hurriedly applied to his face at the ranger station had been removed. His numerous wounds had been stitched together and bandaged again in an elaborate and lurid mask of crisscrossing strips of white. The man's arms and hands had been rebandaged as well. As she entered the room, she thought she might faint. Yet she felt gratitude for the man's courage and for his kindness. Shame for herself that she'd valued the man so little. She pulled over a chair and sat beside his bed. The man's breathing was quick and shallow, but rhythmic. The bed had been cranked to a 33-degree angle. His eyelids fluttered. Was he seeing her? Did he recognize her? The woman thought. He has forgotten my name. The man was trying to speak, or trying to smile. He was asking her, what? His words were slurred. 
she heard herself explain that she would stay with him for a while, until visiting hours ended. She had his wallet and his camera and the key to his station wagon. She said that she would return in the morning when he was to be discharged and would drive him home then, if he wanted, if he needed her. She would return and bring his things with her and drive him home. Did he understand? In his cranked-up bed, the man drifted into sleep. They'd given him a sedative, the woman supposed. His mouth eased open, and he breathed heavily, wetly. This was the night breathing the woman recalled, and now felt comforted to hear. She practiced pronouncing his name, Simon. It seemed to her suddenly a beautiful name, a name new to her in her life, for she'd never before known anyone named Simon. Now tears spilled from the woman's eyes and ran in rivulets down her face. She was crying as she had not cried in memory. She was too old for such emotion. There was something ridiculous and demeaning about it but she was remembering how, at the top of the steep trail, the man had insisted that she drink from his plastic water bottle. She hadn't wanted to drink the lukewarm water, yet had drunk it as the man watched, acquiescing, if with resistance, resentment. In their relationship, the man would always be the stronger. She would resent his superior strength, Yet she would be protected by it. She might defy it, but she would not oppose it. She was thinking of the two or three occasions when she'd kissed the man in a pretense of an emotion she hadn't yet felt. Like the man, the woman was exhausted. She laid her head against the headrest of the chair beside the bed. Her eyelids closed. Vividly, she saw him at the peak of the Wildcat Canyon Trail, holding his complicated camera aloft, peering through the viewfinder. The wind stirred his thinning, silvery copper hair. She hadn't noticed that before. She would go to him, she thought. She would stand close beside him, slide her arm around his waist to steady him. This was her task, her duty. He was stronger than she, but a man's strength can drain from him. A man's courage can be torn from him, can bleed away. But it was she who was afraid of something, wasn't she? The pale blue rim of the Pacific Ocean, the bald sculpted hills, and exquisite little lakes that seemed as unreal as papier-mâché that you could poke your fingers through. To her horror, she realized she was hearing a panting sound, a wet, chuffing breath, somewhere beside her, or below her on the trail, in the gathering dusk, waiting. That was Louise Erdrich reading Mastiff by Joyce Carol Oates, which was published in the July 1, 2013 issue of the magazine. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. 
Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Louise, now that we've heard the story, one thing that I find most interesting about it, you know, that I, I notice especially while editing it, is, is the way that Oates sort of slyly shifts the perspective. You know, we spend most of our time inside the woman's mind. Mm-hmm. At some crucial points along the way, we switch into the man's mind. And it made me wonder how different a story this would be if we saw it only from the woman's point of view or perhaps only from the man's. What do you think? Oh, I think it'd be an entirely different story. And one of the the terrific things about this story is this shifting of points of view. She even nearly shifts into the owner of the dog's point of view. And I'm I'm really surprised she didn't shift into the dog's point of view. <laughs> That's the exact word that I would choose for how this story is written. It's very sly. And the narration sometimes almost seems to fold back and look at itself. Like when when she describes the sunset as a broken, bloody egg, it's very hard to read that and not think of her thinking, hmm, a broken, bloody egg. I'm I'm putting it in there just to, just to, you know, grab you with the broken, bloody egg. And of course, that sort of stands for all of the missed opportunities for children that is hinted at, you know, that are, both of them hint at this, but maybe it's the relationship and, you know, maybe that, that, that he's standing there with the camera, with the damn camera, you know, she, the interiority of this woman's thoughts about what he's doing with the damn camera and, you know, will he think of her? Will he love her the way he's loving this landscape, this broken, bloody egg of a sunset. It's wonderful. <laughs> Her language is just so freighted with, yeah. with emotion and ominousness. I mean, right from the get-go with that dog's tongue that's rosy pink as a sexual organ. You know? oh, I, oh, I love that. Yes. And you have the woman's heart beating like a, a foolish trapped bird. Yes, it's very echoes of Poe with the... And then, the, of course, you have the the end with the cardiac arrhythmia and the fibrillation, you know, these echoes back and forth. And for most of the story, the characters are just referred to as the woman and the man. You know, we learn their names at some point. Yes, yes. But Joyce barely uses their names. Mariella, the character, doesn't use Simon's name right. until the very end in the hospital. When she's thinking what a beautiful name it is. Yeah. Joyce has this great ability to go into the exhausted state and suddenly make it, it's part of the point of view, but it's so invisibly seamed so that you're suddenly thinking and reading in this exhausted state of mind where the thought of it's such a beautiful name. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> see, see, you're part of this, yeah. you know, state of mind. It's in, it's in the language itself. It is. That sense of being implicated. I like that, being implicated in her story, because there's a sense of almost criminality about her characters. I think it's strange, the sense that they've had sex, they've been in, you know, this supposedly intimate moment with each other. And yet they, she says he's a stranger. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if she can help making them seem sinister after the Mastiff appears. But everything they do then seems weighty and you are very worried about the reappearance of the dog. Yeah. And the fact that he and the dog have the same wet, chuffing breath. Well, now, why do you think, why do you think Joyce did that? Because... Presumably, you know, at the end, at least, we're supposed to sympathize with this man. He's done something quite noble. And yet and that's in the very last lines of the story. What she's hearing is, the, is this dog's wet breathing and Simon's heavy night breathing just mm-hmm. kind of blending together in this sort of horror movie way. Right. Why, why do you think she does that? Because she's going to be consumed. She knows that she's going to be consumed by this man's authority that she both resents and listens to, and by his strength, which she cowers behind and yet which makes her furious, and the way she will be basically eaten up by this relationship is very clear to her. I think it's so clever of her to put this in the form of a mastiff. What is that dog? Is it a metaphor? Is it a sign of the relationship to come? What can be many things... But it all, to me, pointed toward a kind of overwhelming male dominion that she was allowing herself to enter into. Going back to the the idea that they're called the woman and the man for so long, do you think that they're meant to be types? You know, she's just sort of the hysterical, self-absorbed woman, and he's this sort of distracted, cold scientist. Are we meant to see them as types, just woman and man? I don't think so. I think that it allows us a greater ease in entering into their mindscape and that you forget who is who a little bit. The way the narrative shifts back and forth, you're you're not impeded by their names. You know, it's interesting. I asked Joyce the same question, and she explained that it's how they see each other, you know, that they're they're seeing each other in impersonal terms. Hmm. Yes, that's true. They only see each other personally once they've had this sort of rush of emotion. Yes, they're both set up as extremely lonely people, primed to find, desperate to find the other person attractive, really, and to fall in love somehow. Yeah. So it's very interesting that she, of course, would, you know, think, I think I'll set up this love story for them to fall in love and be forever mated through this horrible slobbery dog is really funny (laughs) she really does it so well yeah yeah well what do you think this dog attack precipitates between them is it that they are now in love you don't really know how the man's going to come out of all of this right right but you know that of the two of them he was more desperate to be partnered and that he'd been humiliated by the way his life was yeah i think we can assume that when he has this woman who is now prepared to be sort of consumed by the relationship, that he is going to reciprocate that 
and they will have those moments where they, you know, there's this, there, there's that wonderful little paragraph where they find unexpectedly that they have this joy. Mm-hmm. You know, that that actually should be enough for a lot of people. <laughs> right. Don't you think? I, yeah. You know. That, it's not quite enough for her. No, it's not quite. I don't. They They have expectations that really we can't tell what their expectations are, but they seem to be very high. If they can't really take this moment where they feel together and impulsively young and and joyous, if they can't make more of that, it's such a small part of the story. But to me, it really means that there is something there for them. I think it's very interesting how Joyce with a few very deft lines, shows how hard it is to find a relationship after a certain point. You know, how much resistance there is built up in both of these characters. No matter how much they want it, they have to fight through something. I mean, they have to fight a dog. Oh, that's very there. true. That's very true. I, that's another, certainly, I like that way of looking at this this dog, you know, this, <laughs> this mastiff, that they have their, their absolutely ordered lives figured out and they are they're so autonomous that this sense of self you know how she's up there just being in herself and he's looking through a camera but that's his way mm-hmm. that these lives have to be sort of torn apart by an attack right they have to be torn apart exactly and both of them have become extremely vulnerable yeah and then they get stitched together and then they get stitched together. <laughs> but what I like about this plastic water bottle, she comes back to it, and it's, I don't think anyone has ever done quite as much with a plastic water bottle <laughs> as she <laughs> has done in this story. Right. She begins to weep over it. It becomes her like the water of life that he is sort of, he wanted to save her. She begins to reconstruct the entire hike yeah. as though he is her personal hero. When in fact he was just annoyed with her because she didn't exactly. follow his direction. Exactly. <laughs> oh, it's interesting. You know, I asked I asked Joyce if, if this couple was going to stay together. and She did. And she said she thought they were going to have a very happy marriage. She said, you know, a marriage like this can be a very good one since both wife and husband know that they will have to work hard to achieve the relationship. It didn't come naturally. Oh, I think it came very naturally in the form of this beast. (laughs) This this emblem (laughs) of nature, yeah. And not only that, but I think one of the fascinating little pieces of this is they battled and they always will have this person who turned away from them this bit of inhumanity in the owner of the dog. You know, that's a rich little detail in there. Mm-hmm. And I somehow sympathize with the owner of this dog as well. Right. He says, dog has never done anything like this. His dog is a harmless dog in his mind. He knows that his dog will be killed. It makes sense to me that he suddenly runs away. He thinks, I have to save my dog. Yeah. You know? well, he's, he's well portrayed, I think. It was funny when the story came out. Of course, we got a few protesting emails from Mastiff owners <laughs> saying, Did you? saying what peaceful dogs they are and how they never attack. But of course, you know, if you if you look it up, you can find there have been cases where Mastiffs have attacked. And and what it comes down to is not the breed of dog, but the, the breed of owner and the training. It's true. Although, you know, dogs are bred from 
long, long ago to be extremely protective. Mm -hmm. And there's some unpredictability. I'm not surprised you got letters because the bond between people and their dogs is as, as strong or sometimes stronger than between people and other people. There was recently a big, I don't know if it was a debate or discussion online about whether writers and especially women writers have some kind of obligation to produce likable characters. And I think of that when I read this story because these Mm -hmm. two characters aren't always likable. What do you think about that? I think all writers and perhaps especially women feel the necessity sometimes of making their characters likable. We want our characters, main characters, to bond with the, the reader. However, I think even more that if you can pull off making your villain do horrific things and yet be likable, you've really got a good <laughs> thing going, you know. And I think she does that in other um, books. Right. Joyce does that. And in fact, you know, the fact that the, that I had some sort of reaction that was not unsympathetic toward the young man, the dog owner. Who's the least likable of all. He's supposed to be the least likable. And yet the fact is the characters also were not the most likable. In fact, the park rangers are the most likable. <laughs> <laughs> They're the, the most decent ones here. They're the most decent. But the the woman and the man are only unlikable because she allows us access to these pieces of them that we don't really want to admit in ourselves. I mean, these, these are not thoughts that none of us would have. They're very much thoughts that we do have. Yeah, She's just allowed us into their complicated maneuvers and their, their complicated thoughts about each other. And at the age they're at, as we said, they're going to be very scrupulous, over-scrupulous about getting involved. Yeah. And it's it's that kind of over-scrupulous uneasiness that puts you off, I think, from them. You want them to rush together, you know. All right, you want a love story. <laughs> yeah, and so she sends a massive slobbering dog. Thank you so much, Louise. Thanks. Louise Erdrich's latest novel is The Roundhouse. You can subscribe to this podcast in the iTunes Store, where you can download more than 75 previous fiction podcasts, including an episode in which Louise Erdrich reads a story by Laurie Moore. You can also subscribe to The New Yorker Out Loud and The Political Scene podcast. Download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com and join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. 